please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in your mercy uh, that we would hear your word, we would know its truth and goodness, and we would be able, through your work in our lives, uh, to put it into practice, to change our minds, uh, to conform to your truth. And Father, help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly in Jesus' name. Amen. After last Sunday evening's live stream, we were having a brief discussion about how we can engage the confident and the comfortable with the Christian gospel, uh, with the message that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the Lord Jesus, whom he has raised from the dead. And the forgiveness and life, eternal life, can be found by turning back to God by believing and following Jesus. There seem to be uh, so many in our society amongst our neighbours and workmates for whom uh, that message in whatever form and from whatever starting point is shared has no interest, no traction. They're confident in themselves that they, humanity, or at least their slice of humanity, can solve all their own problems without God that they're competent to run their own lives, can sustain their own prosperity and health and individually and collectively withstand and overcome the shocks of the unexpected and unwanted like COVID-19 that life on this planet throws at them. They don't need God, they say, for a full and satisfying life. They're okay on their own, confident, comfortable, complacent and often critical of the belief and behaviours of followers of Jesus, of what they see as the unnecessary complications belief introduces into people's lives would introduce into their lives. Now, you might know people like that. Be fearful for where they'll stand in the judgment and frustrated by your lack of ability to get through to them. What do you say to the proud? who think they have no need of God. Uh, to answer that, we have to start with what God says to the proud. And we find that very clearly in Ezekiel 28. Addressed to the leader of the city of Tyre, someone whose heart, verse 2, that is his mind and will, is proud. Ezekiel 28 seems quite a shift uh, from those parts of Ezekiel we have looked at so far. Up to chapter 24, Ezekiel's prophecies have been focused on the coming judgment of Jerusalem. Judgment of Jerusalem. It's destruction by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. God has been trying to get the Jewish exiles in the province of Babylon to accept its justice and its certainty appealing to them to repent of the same idolatry and sins that have provoked God to act in this way against his own sanctuary and people. We reached a turning point in Ezekiel 24 with the news of the commencement of the siege and you would expect Ezekiel to go straight on and record the fulfilment of his prophecy in the fall of Jerusalem. While he will do that, as we will see next week in Ezekiel 33, in between the announcement of the beginning of that siege and the announcement of its end, Ezekiel has recorded in chapters 25 to 32 a whole series of prophecies of the Lord's judgments on the nations surrounding Israel. 
most, but not all of these, uh, were given during the siege of Jerusalem. All concerned nations that had colluded in planning rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, who had encouraged Judah's rebellion and then failed to help, some even taking delight and profit from Israel's defeat. The very existence of these prophecies against the nations found here and in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel was a reminder to the exiles and to us that the Lord is no small tribal deity. He is the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Lord of human history. He's not just the Lord of people who acknowledge him, people who worship him. He is the Lord of all and he executes his judgments over all and he can work his good purposes for his people in and through all. And so there's a lot there to think about and take comfort from as we see tensions, say, between China and Australia or between Iran and its neighbours or turmoil in Belarus. But today I want to focus on this prophecy against the king of Tyre, on what God says to the proud, including the proud who are not amongst his people, the proud who are completely unconcerned with the Lord, like the king of Tyre. The prophecy of chapter 8 is just one part of the prophecy against Tyre, which covers three chapters, chapters 26, 27 and 28. Tyre was an ancient Phoenician city-state located on the Mediterranean coast, about 20 kilometres north of the current Israeli-Lebanon border. It had had dealings with Israel from the time of David, and it was wealthy, dominating commerce in the region through its fleet, which traded throughout the Mediterranean. And it was currently independent of Babylon. Tyre's prince or king is singled out, but he's a representative of the whole city, of the whole society and its confident pride. In verses 1 to 10, we see first the expression of human pride, its origins and its outcome, and then in verses 11 to 19, the lament for the king of Tyre, we see the pride of the rulers of Tyre presented in exaggerated almost mythological language, to be a type of the ancient and recurring tragedy of creaturely pride. In verse 2, we see uh, pride's, Tyre's pride expressed clearly. I am a god, says the king. I am a god, he says. Now, as far as we know, the Tyrian kings did not, like Egyptian pharaohs, openly claim divine status. So the prophets distilling the attitude the king's actions and words reveal. He claims divine status. That is, the right to be accountable only to himself, to not be under anyone else's authority, to be able to sustain his life and be the source of his own blessing and have the world serve him. And he claims the authority of God. I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas. Sitting on the throne in his island palace, the king claims that he's on the throne of the gods, has the authority to exercise divine rule. He's exalted and can execute his own judgments and make sure his will is done in the world. And he claims the knowledge, the insight of a god. That is what it is to make your heart like the heart of a God. The heart is the thinking and willing centre of our being. The king is claiming divine intelligence, a divine wisdom and will, so that he's confident that his decisions are the right decisions 
decisions that will be effective in promoting his prosperity and security. For humanity, individually or collectively, to claim divine status, authority and wisdom is pride. It's pride to claim that humanity rules, humanity alone, that we're accountable to no one but ourselves, that we're the source of our own prosperity, can ensure our own security, are sufficient in ourselves to know all we need to know to live in the world, to claim these things while all the time, as the Lord observes in verse 9, being mortal. So what led to this claim being made? Uh, the prophet points to Tyrian knowledge and wealth that are then experienced in its beauty and splendour. Verse 3, you're indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. Uh, wisdom is the knowledge that allows you to succeed and prosper in the world. And this prince, wiser even than Daniel probably here, the Biblical Daniel, who was renowned for being able to negotiate the shifting currents in Babylonian political life and still prosper. The king of Tyre has negotiated the shifting currents of trade on the sea, always to his advantage. And for him, nothing's a mystery. He can unlock all the secrets of the universe, what he needs to know about ships and navigation, winds and tides, trading partners and markets, and yes, what other people are thinking. The king's wise, knowledgeable. He can rely on his understanding and judgment. He doesn't need anyone to tell him what he needs to know to prosper. And through his wisdom he has, verses 4 and 5, amassed great wealth. Wealth which is security, whether that's the ability to build a bigger fleet or purchase the latest military hardware or secure your food supply. By wisdom and wealth, the city of Tyre is confident. Confident it can keep itself safe in the world. And by its wisdom and wealth, it's also adorned by beauty and splendour. The king is continually reinforced to him by the plenty of his table, the opulence of his wardrobe, his built environment, his and his city's power, glory and status. His knowledge, his wealth, his beauty all say to him that he is special, self-sufficient, a god. They all allow him to live with this proud illusion and to share that with his society. And so often that's the way it is, isn't it? Wealth and knowledge that allows us to control our environment, to achieve our goals and secure our comfort, health and security make us proud proud enough to say or at least to think, I am, we are gods. But this king is no god. These proud claims will find their contradiction in his death, the death he shares with all people. But the Lord prophesies his end will come in a way that particularly shows up the emptiness of his claims. The Lord, verse 7, will bring the most ruthless of nations, the Babylonians, this is the Lord's world and he directs the affairs even of empires to do his bidding. And they will despoil Tyre and bring it down to death. And it will be, verse 10, a humiliating death. The death of the uncircumcised for to the circumcised Phoenicians, the death of the uncircumcised is an unclean and uncivilised death. 
mortality, you see, is the great denial of any claim to be God. And in the terror, verse 9, of that death, Tyre will have exposed the lie of their proud claims. We all, no matter what we claim, die. The living God alone has life in himself and the living God can end our life when he wills. We're unable to resist his will. The almighty God can bring about what we cannot even imagine, what we may not desire, what we cannot prevent. Our lives, like our lives, our wisdom, strength and resources are finite and his are infinite. And, of course, this is not true only of the king of Tyre, of the people of ancient Tyre. No, this end of pride is true of all the children of Adam. And the lament that follows helps us see the circumstances of every proud human in the history of the king of Tyre. The language here, verses 11 to 19, is deliberately exaggerated with the glory of Tyre and its leader expressed in the most grand manner. Now this may well echo the way they spoke of themselves and also their own accounts of the first human in the garden of God. But the language especially of verses 11 to 14 is also used to bring home what is true, that humanity is created was glorious and privileged, equipped in every way for rule, endowed with splendour. Language used to make us recall Genesis chapters 1 to 3. While some moved by the richness of the language have taken this as recollecting some ancient story of the fall of the devil, this account, like the one in Isaiah 14, is speaking of humans. It speaks, verse 12, explicitly of the king of Tyre and it speaks in a way that recollects the fall of the first ruler of the world, Adam. In both the king's attributes and his fall, we can see every proud human. You were, verse 12, the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The king is portrayed... Uh, as the embodiment of human glory. As his signet or seal, the king is the representative of the true king, the creator, perfectly proportioned, fitted for this role in creation. He had all wisdom and was perfect in beauty, endowed with knowledge, nothing was out of place. His movements were marked by grace and strength, his thoughts by insight, And his home, verse 13, was a paradise, Eden, a realm of prosperity and joy, and he was richly adorned with the treasures of the earth. His was glory and splendour. And notice, these were God's gifts. Wisdom, beauty. Well, these things are not wrong in themselves. They are part of God's good creation, made just as this glorious creature was made, was created by God. On the day you were created, verse 13 and 15, the Lord was the source of this beauty and perfection. And it was the Lord, verse 14, who had given him his privileged position. I placed you. I placed you on the mountain of God. And it was the Lord who gave him the responsibility as the guardian cherub to protect and preserve this 
Eden in all its splendor. But the language of Eden also prompts us to think of the first man, Adam, and Eve, and their endowment of the goodness and abundance of God's provision to humanity in their creating. Sometimes in the life of the privileged and able, you can get a glimpse of what humanity might have been, was designed to be, beautiful, created to rule creation for its good, equipped with understanding to rule creation, and in that to show the goodness and the generosity of the creator. Wisdom, beauty, wealth, not wrong in themselves, part of God's good creation. No, the problem is found in us, verse 15. The problem's not in our location or God's provision. No, unrighteousness was found in you. Ezekiel outlines what the king and the people of Tyre did with God's good gifts and the opportunities it gave them in verses 16 to 18. In each verse, he outlines their sin and its consequences, presented as a fall of epic proportions from the mount of God to the earth, a loss of position and privilege. In seeking wealth through trade, verse 16, they embraced violence, oppressing and exploiting others. Oh, verse 17, their beauty and wisdom made them arrogant. And in their arrogance, in their desire to maintain their position, they embraced intellectual corruption, abandoning truth and the fear of God to promote self-interest. And then verse 18, their dishonest and corrupt trading practices in turn, in Wenham's words, made a mockery of their religious practice. Rejecting God's rule, claiming they were gods, they took God's good gifts and used them to enhance their own rule and position, elevating themselves over others. They acknowledged no constraint upon their behaviour except their own interests. As gods, the world was there to serve them and they were accountable for its use to no one but themselves. Not the nations they wronged in trade, not the people they oppressed in their pride, not the God who had made them. And like Adam who claimed equality with God, who wanted in eating the fruit to become autonomous, that is, the determiner for himself of good and evil, right and wrong, to make decisions not on God's word but on what suited him. Like Adam, they are cast from God's presence, verse 16, their folly, verse 17, exposed to all, and they are left, verse 18, to the consequences of their pride in their own society, I brought fire out from your midst. Denying God, claiming equality with God, does not stop the Lord being God, being the just judge of all, a God who in Isaiah's words will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, who will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. In God's judgment on Tyre, the proverb proves true. Pride goes before a for destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that will always be the case in the world God rules. For his glory and our own good, the Lord will always oppose human pride. For when the creature claims to be God, we oppress others and we destroy ourselves. For we are finite and mortal and can only sustain our claims by 
dangerous self-deception that exposes us to destructive folly. Uh, by forcing others to bow down to us, others who will contest our claim to be God in favour of their own. In retelling Tyre's pride and fall in the language of Adam, this prophecy is a warning to all the proud, a warning wealthy Western nations like ours should heed. You see, we also are a nation which has grown rich on trade. And like Tyre, we are proud, comfortable, complacent, confident in ourselves oh we don't say i am a god no our society wants to say there is no god while we tolerate people keeping their own private personal gods for their personal comfort we don't acknowledge a real god who rules and judges on whom our lives and prosperity depend and claiming there is no god we have moved ourselves into the place of god Confident we have the wisdom and knowledge to secure our own wealth and safety that we can unlock all the secrets of the world. Confident to set and live by our own rules. Now let me give you some examples. I'm sure you can provide more of your own. As every one of you who's been asked by your work which pronoun you wish to be referred to by, and many of you I know have been asked that question, our society believes we have a right to define our own identity, whether we're he or she or whatever. Our society believes we can redefine marriage, rejecting it as given by God. Confident in our knowledge and insights, we're engaging in a great social experiment, abandoning the restriction of sex and childbearing to marriage between a man and a woman, marginalising the permanency of marriage, the authority of parents, the significance even of biology. And we can solve, we say, our own problems. Look at the response to the pandemic. Oh, yes, we as believers are praying But where is the public call to turn to God for mercy? It's not there because there's no need. We can beat this on our own, putting our trust in our leaders and science, and we can secure our own economic recovery. We have the resources. Oh, and to secure our wealth, we are happy to oppress others, aren't we? Whether it's the bugging of the Prime Minister of Timor-Leste's office in 2004 to give us advantage in treaty negotiations with that poorer country or seeking to withhold workers' entitlements. Even our universities have been found out underpaying their staff. We are proud, an increasingly proud society, trusting in our wisdom and wealth like tire to keep us secure and comfortable, corrupting our wisdom to embrace folly in the name of preserving our own sense of godlikeness our own autonomy, to rule our lives and to be accountable only to ourselves. The judgment on pride is a judgment our society should fear, a judgment each one should fear if you are mortal, are living as if you are the God of your own life, living by your own rules, accountable only to your own judgment or that of your like-minded peers, putting all your trust in your own wisdom and insight. You should fear that judgment. But it's not just enough for believers to say that our society is proud and must humble itself before its maker. We believers live in our society unless we actively resist, we take on like a chameleon the colours, the attitudes of those we live amongst. 
Seeing our pride is worth asking, as I've been asking myself, how might the pride of a prosperous, self-sufficient society have seeped into our thinking as believers? Now, test all things, but here are some suggestions. Unconcern for the poor. That was the sin, according to Ezekiel 16, of proud Sodom. So how much do we factor in provision for the poor here and overseas into our spending decisions? Do we give more than our spare change? A lack of thankfulness for the common goods of this life, peace, plenty, health, is heartfelt thankfulness slipping out of our common and private prayers. Do we invest in and rely more on our programs and techniques than prayer and faithfulness for evangelism or raising up gospel workers? Do we as Christians expect cultural dominance and privilege, that we should have the good jobs and positions of influence and that we alone in the worldwide Christian family should not have to sacrifice and suffer? Oh, do we think like our post-Christian society that we can sustain the fruit of Christian behaviour without the root of a living faith expressed each day by dying to ourselves to follow Jesus by doing what he teaches. As I look at my life, what I invest my time in, the nature of my prayers and plans, I'm convicted that conformity to our proud world is never far away and that I need to be continually transformed. What about you? But how? How can we escape pride and its judgment and learn to walk humbly with God? Because pride is an attitude, a belief about ourselves, escaping pride starts in our thinking, our thinking about ourselves. So let me tell you four truths that if embraced will free you from pride. And this in a sense is just a start. But firstly, we are creatures, finite in wisdom and power, with our life a gift from our creator who is infinitely greater. He has no limit to his might or wisdom. He gives us life and he can take it when he chooses and he has every right to. We are the clay and he is the potter. He exalts and he brings down and he is not accountable to us in any way. He's the source of all the good we enjoy and our work and wisdom the means, not the cause of enjoying his prosperity. Humility begins with confessing we are creatures, our life dependent on our creator. Secondly, we are sinners. We're deceived and self-deceiving in darkness unless the Lord shines the light of his truth into our lives. We corrupt all our thinking and actions with our self-love, a self-love that distorts all our judgments. Humility comes with confessing that God's judgment on us is just and that we're actually dependent on him for a true knowledge of ourselves and our world. Thirdly, humility comes from confessing that we are and can only be saved from the consequences of our pride by the crucified Saviour, Jesus. Jesus on the cross is the antithesis of human pride. That autonomy we claim, the right to do what we want, he turned his back on saying, your will be done, not mine. The comfort we desire, he didn't seek for himself. He did not put his own interests first, but ours. (coughs) He humbled himself to die a death 
No human wisdom would want for himself. No human power permit itself to suffer. Yet here alone in the death of the one the proud despise can we be despaired the death our proud rejection of our creator's word and rule deserve. Fourthly, we can embrace humility by confessing we are saved by Jesus, by grace alone, not by our works. That there is nothing we have done or can do that contributes to making us right with God, that it depends all on our God, his choice, his call, his grace, his sacrifice of his son in our place. Confessing that should end all our pride, all our boasting. If you want to escape pride and the judgment on pride, confess what's true, that you're a creature, a sinner, someone who is only saved by the cruel death of Jesus on the cross, saved only by God's free decision to show you mercy. And if you're done with the folly and futility of living as if you're a God and you haven't yet done it, call out to the living God for mercy. And if you're a believer, well, we have to nurture that confession in our hearts every day. But what is within must find expression in our lives. We not only have to learn to think humbly, we have to learn to walk humbly. But how? Well, above all, by embracing the life of humble service of others that Jesus modelled and called his followers to practice. Washing his disciples' feet, he says, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. The Lord Jesus, who said that greatness was service. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Pointing to Jesus, Paul called believers in Philippi to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves, looking not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Service of others is the test of whether the gospel you confess has shaped your life. Now that service starts in the home and spreads out from there. And so parents, dads especially, do your children see you, say, clean up around the house or do a job you don't like to do for the sake of others? Oh, and young people, do you only help when you are made to? Or do you serve like Jesus willingly because you follow Jesus? Service starts in the home, but it can't stop there. There are neighbours, there are brothers and sisters in Christ to serve with the gift God gives us. And if you think you're too busy, and we can be busy at times, review your busyness. Don't let it be an excuse just to concern yourself with your own interests. We should serve and we should cultivate the habits of a humble life. What are they? Some suggestions. Generosity. For when we see need, we think, there but for the grace of God go I. Thankfulness to God always, including formally giving thanks at meals and celebrations. Saying, Lord willing, publicly recognising that our plans only come to fruition as the Lord prospers us ordering our time to do what God tells us because we know we are not our own but we are his. And yes, courtesy to all, not expecting people to serve us 
but being courteous, patient and kind, especially to the less powerful in the relationship. And we need to work at this because consumerism flatters us into thinking that we are the most important person in the world whose choices should always be fulfilled. And thinking that, we can start treating people in shops as if it's true. It doesn't cost you anything extra to say thank you, to acknowledge the humanity and dignity of someone serving you, and there is no humility in rudeness. In a proud society, we should ground our thinking in the truths that humble us and we should practice the behaviours that nurture humility in us so that in humility we can speak to our proud world, to the confident and complacent. As we think about what we say, again, don't confuse the possession of wealth or wisdom with pride. Wealth and knowledge are good gifts of God and they can be possessed with a good heart by those who have good hearts. But there are many who put their trust in their wealth and wisdom, in themselves and their own abilities and judgments and think they can act like they are God. While we might look for ways to engage them, we need to tell them the truth, for humility does not think it knows better than God what the proud need to hear. <laughs> that To think you're a God even if it is God of your own life with the right to do whatever pleases you, that to act like you're a God, as if you're accountable only to yourself, that to put their trust in their own goodness and reason or in human leaders as if they are gods who can save them. To do those things, says God, is the sin of pride and it will lead to a fall. So we need to tell people that they are mortal and that death will be the end of all their claims and all their imaginings and that their wisdom and wealth will not mean they escape death and judgment and that their princes, their secular saviours are mortal and their plans and promises perish with them. Now they may not want to hear, they may dismiss it but it should be said clearly so that when God humbles them they will perhaps know it is his doing and they know the one to whom they should turn for mercy. But we should also remember that in a proud society, not all are proud, and that many have been humbled by grievous failure or are all too aware of the limits of their own power or wealth or knowledge. Many, knowing no God and confronted with their limits, challenged, say, by their children's behaviour or the inability to find work, are anxious, fearful and confused. Point them to the humble Saviour who served and yet is the Almighty Lord who associated with the lowly, who knows want and grief, who says the kingdom of heaven is not for the proud but for the poor, those who have come to the end of their resources, those who know they have nothing to offer God. The humble Saviour who beckons the weary to come to him. Ask them to whom to turn Ask them to turn from the proud who cannot even save themselves from death to the one who, having died the death of the despised, lives to always keep his promises, to give life and rest to all who call on him. God opposes the proud, but in his Son he has given grace to the humble. Let's pray. 
Our gracious God, uh, we pray that you would turn us from pride and conceit, that you would let us know our frailty, our finitude and our sinfulness so that we wouldn't trust in ourselves and our own judgments but would trust in your Son, the Lord Jesus, who humbled himself to die for us and who has been exalted to your right hand with all rule and authority. And gracious Father, we pray that trusting him, we would learn to live humble lives of service like him and so bring honour to you. Sustain us in the practice of humility, we pray, in generosity and thankfulness, in the humility that says, Lord willing, in the courtesy that honours all. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.